Oh, Father, we lift up our voices unto you in praise today because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, whose shed blood on Calvary washed away our sins, who secured payment for them in his broken body. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have to open your word. I pray that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to hear the implanted word. And I thank you, Lord, that already for those who confess faith in Christ in this room, whose souls are regenerate, who have received the healing touch of your hand, resurrection unto spiritual new life, who have been redeemed and regenerate, that you have already, Lord Jesus, implanted your word, driven roots down into their soil. We now pray that you would use the means of this service for us to be more fruitful, bearing more fruit unto your name and glory. As we begin to see, Lord Jesus, the aspects of truth that are forever proclaimed in your word, realize in our mental capacity and our lifestyle and decisions and our testimony to a godless world so we might shine more brightly in a day of encroaching darkness, that our salt be, be more flavorful, Lord. May it be so in a day, Lord Jesus, where the suffocating effects of culture and sin would seek to drown out the testimony of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would equip your church today as we open your scriptures. Let our hearts and minds be set upon you. I pray not only, Lord Jesus, would we have intellectual understanding, but that you would spark in us such a deep desire that our affections might burn brightly, Lord, to receive what you have forever written down in this glorious love letter to fallen man. Through you we can be saved, Lord, and reunited, reconciled to a holy God. And we thank you that the record and the story, the implications and the power of that are all, Lord, preserved for us to appreciate today. As we open up your scriptures, illuminate them to our heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, it's a great privilege to open up the scriptures together and to discuss Christ in his office as judge. To do so with me, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25. The final segment of the final structured discourse in Matthew opens in verse 31 by a proclamation of Christ himself as Son of Man and what the implications will look like for, the, for him returning in judgment. This goes through the end of the chapter in verse 46. So Matthew 25, 31 through 46 will be our text this morning where we will explore the implications of Christ the judge. So with your Bible open, and if you're able, please stand with me this morning for the reading and hearing of the Word of God. Again, Matthew 25, 31. Here we have the immortal words of Christ as we read. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. How ought the reality of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ inform our understanding of the gospel? How does the gospel, as, as we understand it and appreciate it, increase in its value, its power, its clarity, its effectiveness, its truth, its weight, its authority, its influence in our day and age when we have a robust view of all aspect of, uh, aspects of Christ and His character? It is popular to consider Christ as a Savior, an advocate, a friend, uh, someone I can relate to and appreciate, a humanitarian, a guide, uh, someone who is a great teacher, a historical figure. All of those aspects of Christ and the figment of the imagination of the average you know, cultural uh, just occupant of our society today might be just fine, maybe even delightful thoughts to them. But I submit to you these days, the aspect of Christ's role as judge, as the one who holds within his hand the power to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, light from darkness, to speak specifically through the power of his word to separate asunder soul and spirit. Now when it comes to these aspects of Christ and his revealed character, suddenly the hearer's ears aren't tickled anymore. And suddenly you might find them recoiling an offense to the gospel. This has always been the case, I submit to you. Why? Because men are lost in their trespasses and sins. They want to be justified without dying to themselves. They want to come up with a way to justify themselves without surrendering to the one who declares that they are wicked, irreparable sinners, hell-bent, worthy of an eternal burning lake of fire, unless they have an alien righteousness, as it were. Unless a power acts upon them entirely independent of themselves, their ideas, their ambitions, and brings them salvation, calls the dead man to life, and brings them to a state where they no longer are corrupt and damn worthy in their uh, hellish sin, but instead are awakened to newness of life, a born-again creature in Christ Jesus. The good news of the gospel comes in the context of the bad news of our sin. The bad news of our sin would carry little or if no weight at all if there wasn't a judge and accounting a day of reckoning where the sin of mankind would be dealt with decisively once and for all. 
And so the gospel comes in the context of both mercy and judgment, and neither makes sense without the other. The gospel comes in the context of both mercy and judgment, neither makes sense without the other. There is no such thing as undeserving grace and, mer- and, and favor, mercy, if there isn't, on the other hand, deserving judgment. And there is no such thing as judgment, uh, it, or there, there is such a thing as judgment without mercy, uh, but there would be no such thing as good news. So as far as the gospel goes, both taken hand in hand, create the full orb view of how the truth of Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the Gospels and the rest of Scripture. As we consider this, consider also an example of how the truth of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ was utilized by the apostolic church. You know, just as a brief aside and illustration to the negative, I was preaching a funeral one time, and there was two ministers, one. The first minister delivered a message. He said, you know, the death of so-and-so seems absurd to us. And in many ways, he cited a humanist, nihilistic philosopher, Albert Camus. He said, much of life is absurd. But where Albert Camus got it wrong is not all of life is absurd. Absurd. What he forgot was the love of God. And then he began to throw out some platitudes about the love of God. The love of God is popular. The judgment of God appears absurd to man. We live in a world where every single one of us, as we've read in Hebrews, is appointed us for us to die and after that the judgment. And the only escape is in Christ. It is not absurd that man die. It is not absurd that we would give an accounting and a reckoning for our sin. That is justice. If there is a holy God in this universe, there must be a reckoning for evil. There must be a place, a time, an era, a moment in cosmic history where the balances of right and wrong are set aright, or God is not God, and evil will triumph, and the devil is authoritative, or wickedness is sovereign, and none of that is true. None of that is the case. Do not be ashamed of the aspects of the gospel that call man to repentance or else. And we cannot forget the or else part. If we do, we forget the New Testament teaching. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. He's storming the Areopagus with this message of the gospel in this pagan area where the most erudite and advanced of scholars whose mental ideas and philosophies have shaped the culture and all of the known world. He introduces concepts to them that are foolish to the pagan ear but they were powerful unto salvation. He says in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice the categories in this sermon. In this brief moment here, in this propositional truth, he shows that there is a time where it appears that man gets away with his wanton sin. That God, in these times of ignorance, passively overlooked as it would appear. But there is coming a moment of decisive reckoning where all must give account. And therefore, in anticipation of that great event, 
God commands everyone everywhere to repent. He has fixed a day, the apostle says, the day of judgment, if you will, on which he, who is he, Jesus Christ, will judge the world. Christ, the judge, will judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness. And this man whom Christ has appointed, that language appointed, relates to the concepts in Hebrews of fullness of time, perfection, and someone who is anointed, commissioned specifically, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who at the proper time became incarnate, spoke the word in flesh, and then earned the right, as it were, to receive a kingdom from his Father, to judge the world accordingly, and to separate in his, by his right hand and left hand the sheep from the goats. This is Jesus Christ, the man whom God the Father has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance. How do we know that this will happen? How do we know that it is, that it is certainty? Is there a historical event that rings the clarion call, the bell of truth, that deafens the ears of obstinate man that says, you better shape up, you better repent, you better look to Christ or else? Yes, that event was his resurrection from the dead. When Christ was raised from the dead, he burst the seal of Rome, the stone was rolled aside, and the soldiers were struck back. And by so doing, he demonstrated his authority in John chapter 10, verse 17. I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to take it up again. When Christ demonstrated his power and authority to take up his life again by resurrection, it meant something for the future. It meant that there was a day on the horizon where every man will stand before the judgment seat of God. There are related parables that Jesus has already used to describe, to explain aspects of this truth. If you turn back in your own reading to Matthew 13, in verse 24 and following, you find the parable of the wheat and the tares. And though they grow together, what is, what is the expecta <coughs> expectation? One day they will be separated. And what is the destiny of the tares? They're bundled and they're thrown into great fires. The same as we read in Matthew 25. Again, he spoke a parable in chapter 13, verse 47 through 50. A dragnet is, is, is pictured there, a net that follows along the bottom of the ocean. And it, without missing a single one, gathers in all the fish and everything that is in its path and its wake. And when the contents are drawn up on the shore, the fisherman separates the fish that he will save that are useful and those that are not are thrown away, disposed of, discarded. These are the parables that illustrate to us Christ the judge. They tell us that there is a day that we look forward to either in anticipation or look forward to with confidence knowing that our sins are covered in Christ or look forward to in sheer terror if we have not received propitiation for our sins. And that is the day that all history is careening towards. This morning, as we look more closely and specifically at Matthew 25, let me give you a heading for, for three points. Decisive judgment is revealed in three categories. Just want to remind you three themes in Matthew 25 that we've highlighted to categorize these parables and the teaching of Christ. First of all, waiting is dangerous. The times in between uh, decisive moments of God's intervention in history the times in between divine intrusion, we mentioned a few, like when Christ had ascended, 
the time between that and when he returned in judgment. In Matthew 24, that era was described as very dangerous. Waiting is dangerous. We live in another interim time, and the same counsel applies. From the apostolic church, when the first wave of gospel ministry was going forth, such as we read in Acts verse 17, chapter 17, all the way until the second coming of Christ, it's a longer interim period, if you will. And during that time, we need to understand that waiting is dangerous. Secondly, though, uh, those who wait well are diligent. The faithful are diligent. And then the third concept is the decisive reckoning. So uh, diligence or danger, diligence, and decisiveness. And that third category really marks Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. The accounting, the reckoning, that final day is decisive. So decisive judgments revealed in three categories. First of all, Son of Man comes. Secondly, affirmation decree. And thirdly, condemnation decree. First of all, we have Christ revealing himself as the Son of Man and describing what that coming in judgment looks like. And then we have two specific events. One is the affirmation of those who are find favor with him, and the other is the condemnation of those who do not. So Son of Man comes, verses 31 through 39, looking again at our text in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And then he answers when, he's, when we've done it to the least of these. So let me back up. This first category of Son of Man comes actually is through verse 34. I mentioned 39, but I misread my writing. So let's consider verses 31 through 34, the Son of Man comes. First of all, the Son of Man's arrival with the angels with him and him seated on his glorious throne is associated with other events in Scripture. So I'd like to touch on a few glorious reference points. I've already mentioned one, and that is that Christ has authority and power to lay his life down and to take it up again. If you turn over a page in Matthew 26, you find that the very next event in the course of the gospel is that Christ will go to his passion. There is a plot that is stirred up to kill Jesus. He will be betrayed, as we read in recent weeks, by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. There is the institution of the Lord's Supper, Peter's denial, the Gethsemane experience. He stands trial before Caiaphas and company. Then he's delivered to the pagans, Pilate, and so on. He's mocked. He's crucified in chapter 7. And so we have the account of his final hour. It was important for the disciples to realize right on the threshold of these events, that Christ was not just the suffering servant who as a lamb led to slaughter, without protest, will lay his life down. 
Though there is an aspect of Christ in his humility laying aside his divinity that is featured in his going to the cross, there is also an aspect of these events that relates to his power and his authority. It was important for the disciples to realize on the threshold of his passion that Jesus Christ was not just the suffering one who would be defeated as it appeared on the outside by the powers at play during that time. But he, in fact, was the Son of Man who will come in glory and will gather angels with him and sit on his glorious throne. This was the perspective that the disciples needed to hear to receive faith as he was heading into his passion. They may not have taken it seriously. All the pieces may not have been arranged in their mind exactly as they ought to have been. But we can see the order of the way the record is laid out here and recognize, therefore, its value. Jesus touched on this truth even during the moments of his passion a few times. In Matthew 26, 53, we have one of them. This following the event where Peter, seeking to rescue Christ by striking the, high, uh, the servant of the high priest in verse 51, behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we find him to be Peter in another gospel, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? who will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? There's a glimpse into the authoritative purpose of glory behind these events. Christ is saying the reason these things are happening is not because I've been overpowered by the temple guards, not ultimately because I've been betrayed by my disciple over here, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver. Not because public opinion is turning against me and now the gig is up. I become unpopular in the eyes of the onlookers. No. The reason these things are happening is because the scriptures are being fulfilled and it must be so. He says, to underscore this truth, that if in fact what stood between Jesus Christ and the will of the Father was an army, a court, a pagan ruler, or public opinion, could he not summon the legions of angels in glory and in an instant thwart his enemies and rout his foes such that they wouldn't even be able to breathe another breath? We see this in the course of history. With lesser examples, do we not? Elijah prays his servants' eyes are open and the armies of heaven fill the horizon. And in a moment, the enemies of God are thoroughly destroyed. Overnight, it happens. There are these times in history where the power of God is revealed when the curtain of heaven is pulled back to see who really is sovereignly in control. Christ is the judge. He is the judge of those who will judge Him falsely during this exchange. He is the one who will ultimately sit on that seat of reckoning and before Him everyone will stand. Caiaphas, Judas, Pilate, you, I, everyone who has ever lived. And this is the truth that Christ was revealed, revealing to his disciples, even as he was going to the cross. Turn with me to Daniel 7. We've referenced this scripture many times, but there is a reason for that. It's because it is one of those paradigmatic moments in biblical prophecy 
it's difficult, very difficult to understand much of the New Testament without an understanding of Daniel's prophecies, specifically when it refers to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. You'll notice that Jesus uses, he identifies himself with the Son of Man in Matthew 25, in verse 31, when he says, The Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. Well, that language harkens back to what God has revealed already in the Old Covenant. And in Daniel 7, let's read verses 9 through 14. As I looked, Daniel, in his vision, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, his hair uh, of his head was pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Notice the picture, the Ancient of Days. The word implies, the name suggests, proclaims, decrees that this is the one who holds all of history in his sovereign hand. He's its creator, its providential sustainer. He's the one that directs it to his specific ends, the Ancient of Days. And in his courtroom and in the place where his glory is manifest, his authority is proclaimed, and he resides are myriads, thousands times ten thousands, too many to count, in fact, the imagery would seem to suggest who serve him at his beck and call and command. This is a picture in Daniel's vision of Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. He assembles for himself as far as the spiritual eye can see thousands and thousands who will do his will at the snap of his divine fingers. Where else or what else can we see in this picture? He sits in a court of judgment. That is, he is exalted in a place, seated over, and judging, therefore, everything that is secondarily under his jurisdiction. And there is no category of history, people, nations, times, eras, persons that falls outside of that rule and reign. And then books were opened. Books are referred to again, of course, in Revelation where the names are written in the book of life. And there, this suggests an accounting, a perfect record, um, where the, uh, the list, the rap sheet, if you will, of those who stood before him could be read, and thereby judgment meted out accordingly. We go on to read in verse 11, I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. For the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In the book of Daniel, we find that beasts represent imperial nations, powerful forces internationally at the time. Nations, peoples, societies, governments, social movements that seem to control large swaths of history and large numbers of people. Remember in Matthew 25, 31, there's coming a day when the Son of Man comes in His glory with His angels. He sits on His glory's throne and before Him who is gathered all the nations. All the beasts, if you will, that have reared their ugly head. All the Babel complexes that have tried to usurp the power of His throne. To state that things, reality is a different way. That salvation can be earned by man collectively. Every single attempt to exalt an idea or a person or an era of history, a collective above the knowledge of God, must one day face an accounting 
before the Son of Man when He appears in His glory with those numbers of angels pictured in Daniel 7 and nations and individuals stand before Him and receive each and every one without failure their just sentence. 13 and 14 in Daniel 7. I saw in the night vision and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So here we have the jurisdictional authority delegated to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as the agent of the ancient of days, receiving his kingdom and to act on his behalf. Verse 14 says as much. And to him, that is to Christ, Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In the book of Matthew, Jesus came preaching what? The kingdom of God. And there is this moment of coronation, if you will, of apex of fulfillment when he would receive the full authority, he would satisfy all the terms and conditions, and he would then rule and reign sovereignly, and nothing would stand in his way. And this happened at his ascension, I submit to you, where he received from the ancient of days his kingdom when he went up before the Lord. This is exactly what Stephen sees in his vision. Stephen preaches the gospel to the false authorities of the day. And as they're picking up stones to throw him, he concludes his message by saying, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. What does that message convey to the hearers? doesn't matter who you are religious elite, a Pharisee of Pharisees, leader. Saul, remember, was standing there. He himself described himself as uh, among the religious elite and influential, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He stood there listening to Stephen declare that the Son of Man had received his kingdom and what was to be expected. Well, those who knew Daniel 7 also knew that, the, that, was, that what was expected on the heels of this event in redemptive history was a judgment the authority and power to dispense according to the will of the sovereign righteousness. This is a picture of the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, when he, and He will sit on His holy, glorious throne, before Him will be gathered all the nations, and what will He do? He will separate people from one, uh, one from another as a shepherd separates sheep. And goats. This reality is true, let me submit to you, in three senses. And this is my, this is my eschatological, if you will, end times conviction as to this passage. Many have disputed or argued or, you know, there's a lot of controversy and interpretation on when the events of Matthew 24 and 25 took place. Their first and perhaps you could say primary fulfillment I do hold is the AD 70 judgment. Christ had already received His kingdom at His ascension, and this was manifest in the judgment of the old temple order and the ancient system that now stood blasphemously against the Christ, the Messiah, and God's plan revealed in redemption. So in this way, when Jesus was prophesying Matthew 24 and 25, there was an imminent reality. If you turn over to 2664, I think you find as much. Again, Jesus testifying before another court, and it's ironic because as Jesus is, uh, you know, tried before these authorities, very shortly the tables will be turned. 
and the difference will be that he will actually have the power and authority to do something about those who are under trial, whereas what they were doing was uh, completely subject to his own uh, power to let them do so, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So Jesus remains silent, first of all, verse 63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, and here's these, this key phrase, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the high priest knew something about the implications of this statement, and this is obvious in the next verse. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. In these moments, Jesus is revealing something of his authority. He's pulled back just slightly the curtain of his sovereignty so that the false authorities of his day can see who he really is. If Jesus is correct, there will be a time that will be imminent, where he will assume the throne. And the message is, all of history and the circumstances are different from now on. From that moment when Jesus ascended and received the authority from the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man is evidently seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there is an imminent reality pictured here. But I submit to you, this rule and reign is also progressive. And that's the second true sense in which Jesus exercises his authority. And perhaps the best passage as Paul expounds some of these truths to reference in this regard is 1 Corinthians 15. may be familiar to you, but I certainly never tire of reading it. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have truths about the future in association with the sovereignty of Christ that Paul reveals connected directly to his resurrection. And you'll remember what he also preached in Athens, the seal of Christ's authority that he will one day judge all men and nations is in the fact that he has been raised from the dead. He's reiterating as much and expounding in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 when he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until, think of that from now on language in Matthew 26, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The at last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. So you see there's an imminent reality. All things are in subjection under His feet. And there's a progressive reality. He is making, or He is reigning until all His enemies are under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. See, ultimate power, advancement, and uh, the authority asserted of the kingdom of God will take place progressively in time. I have a little analogy I'll remind you of 
that I like to think of to describe this concept of Christ having all rule and progressively subjecting his enemies under his feet. There's a small island nation called Tyre. And usually, it, well, it's, it's seen in biblical prophecy time and again. One day I did a Wikipedia search and found that through the course of history it had been conquered like 11 times. It was an important little port city. Well, there was a, uh, one of the last times it was conquered was by Alexander the Great, as I understand it. And it was one of those little jewels in the Mediterranean, you know, uh, not very big, but very prosperous. Uh, it was a hub of commerce, very wealthy, and it stood about a mile off the mainland. What happened was, is Alexander the Great wanted to conquer the city, and he was patient, and he had resources. So he been, eventually built a siege ramp, or land bridge, all the way out there. And to this day, Tyre's no longer an island because of the work of Alexander the Great. It's now connected to the mainland. All those buildings and all those great structures and all these monuments to the wealth and commerce on the city of Tyre were actually broken down and used as riprap and bridge material to build that ramp from the mainland to the island. So the message, the analogy is this. The more the wicked man builds his buildings and the higher his edifices rise, you know, in rebellion against God, in the course of history, as nations rise and rear their ugly head before him, they actually supply building materials when they are destroyed for the sovereign plan of Christ to reconfigure the landscape of human history. This is a picture I like to use to describe or to help us understand that even though the wicked seem to endure for a while or Christ's enemies seem to thrive for a season, all their efforts eventually serve God's glory and only make him more manifestly known and gloriously revealed in all his kingdom-conquering authority. So, Jesus Christ, the sovereign Son of Man, is in control, or the uh, Son of Man in his sovereignty, demonstrates his authority and kingdom in three senses, imminence, progressive, and then ultimate. And ultimate just means that that final day will come where the picture of Matthew 25 is also appropriate to describe the conditions, and we find this in Revelation 20, 11 and following. In John's vision, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. You remember Daniel 7, books were opened, courtroom, all the myriads of angels stood before him. That's the scene. Here we see recapitulate these prophetic themes to describe the day of judgment when Christ will rule and all will give an account. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. When death and Hades were thrown, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name was not written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. Imminence, progressive, and ultimate rule and reign of Jesus Christ is on the heels of Matthew 25 and the events that surround it. Finally, under decisive judgment revealed as a Son of Man coming, there's another reference to the Son of Man that we can't go into in detail this morning in the interest of time. But mark for study in your own time Ezekiel chapter 34. 
Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel himself, as a prophetic agent of God, is referred to as the Son of Man. So God says, I will show you this, uh, you know, su such and such, O Son of Man. That's in 34.1. And then what he begins to show him, ultimately, is a picture of sheep and goats and shepherds and so on, and how the judge, the coming judge, will discern and will separate and will uh, enact authoritatively all of the righteous demands of God himself. And you'll find, it, for instance, in verses 1 through 10, that the false shepherds themselves are judged. Those are the leaders who claim to have some sway over the people, but do not themselves submit to the Lord. Second, you find a, a search and rescue mission that takes place, where the true sheep, who are scattered and abandoned, are collected and gathered, verses 11 through 16. Then you find the winnowing of the flock itself, where the sheep and the goats are separated, those who might look at first glance similar, the uh, great shepherd, the true shepherd, separates them. And then finally, verses 25 through 31, he makes a covenant with the true sheep and their security there that is pictured an assurance that they will be safe on into the future. So this is Son of Man uh, imagery and prophetic pictures in Ezekiel 34 that use the same examples, or some of the same pictures that Jesus uses in Matthew 25, namely sheep and goats and so on. So secondly, this morning, decisive judgment revealed in three categories. Category number two is affirmation decree. Let's read verses 34 through 40 again in Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So how, you know, what, does, what identifies those or what is different about the category that receives the affirmation of the Lord? This is the affirmation decree. Those who receive this, this incredible welcoming uh, um, declaration, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. More uh, compassionate and glorious saving words have never been and will never be uttered in all of history. This is the reconciliation language of a holy God with, a sinful, with sinful man, where he can enjoy the fellowship on the basis of, of his fruit, the fruit of what is fundamentally changed in his heart, being analyzed and proving legitimate his salvation, his regeneration experience, the affirmation decree. First of all, notice in verse 34 the sovereignty of the kingdom, kingdom sovereignty. Christ, his favorite term to, re, to refer to himself as is son of man. Of course, we find this in 2531. He does not often exalt himself by other language, 
such as we have it in this verse. But for a moment, or for a brief moment, there's an exception to the rule, and we see him identify himself as king. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Jesus identifies himself as the sovereign, as the king. Not only that, but there is a mutual affirmation. Not only does the king extend his scepter, as it were, a favor unto us, so that we have safe passage into his holy realm. But there is a mutual affirmation of the Godhead. Jesus Christ welcomes us, and so does God the Father. He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father. The personal elements of the Trinity and the work of salvation come into view. The Father has set his blessing upon those, the elect, who will be called. They will one day call Christ their King, and they will swear to him their allegiance. He is their Lord. They are not among the ones who say, Lord, Lord, and it's, and it's disingenuous, and then they hear the condemnation, depart from me, I never knew you. But when they say, Jesus is my Lord, they, not ju- they don't just hear his word and disregard it, minimize it, take it for granted, try to reinterpret it, but they do it. They submit to him. They find themselves in uh, their identity in his realm. He is their sovereign. They are his subjects. They recognize his realm reaches everywhere, and they know that his law is their delight, namely his word. This is the picture here. Remember Psalm 61 last week? John 17, which both talked about inheritance. In Psalm 61, David is talking about first an anguish that he finds himself at the ends of the earth. He cries out for salvation. Four locations. Secondly, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, a place of stability, mooring, foundation. Thirdly, he says, you have become to me a strong tower against my enemies. And fourthly, that place of intimate communion. Lead me to the tent under the shelter of your wings. May I take refuge. And we picture the cherubim, the mercy seat within the tabernacle of the Lord. Well, he goes on to say that there are four qualifications for the, mess, for the Messiah that will make this possible. First of all, he will keep his vows. And we mentioned how ultimately this was Christ himself keeping the vows, keeping the covenant of works with the Lord so that his perfect obedience can be transferred to us in the great exchange that we might be declared righteous. But also we found that the king receives an inheritance. The Messiah king, may you have an inheritance of those who fear the Lord. And we mentioned how this could be interpreted two ways. In a, uh, in a human way, or in the, the smaller sense, may I share in the inheritance of those who also fear you. But in the broader sense, in the messianic sense, the inheritance can be described as those who fear you actually being the inheritance of the king. And when we listen to these verses, or this verse today, we see this inheritance language coming to the fore. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In John 17, Jesus describes all of the elect are given to him as an inheritance. The a phrase comes to mind, may the lamb receive the rewards for his sufferings. 
but the inheritance is exponentially greater. It overflows, it spills onto us. That is, because Christ has received as his inheritance those for whom he died, then consequently, those for whom he died receive the inheritance of Jesus Christ, which is the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. Nothing can compare to this promise. Is there any wealth? Is there any peace? Is there any assurance, joy, security, communion that could compete with this great kingdom? No, in fact, there is no other. Everyone that pretends to be a competitor is ultimately destroyed before his glorious throne. But we who are in Christ inherit the kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. In this passage, we find that the full scope of redemption, the work of Jesus Christ, and the promise of his future is personal, powerful, and purposeful. The kingdom of God in its full arc of completion, what it promises is personal, powerful, and purposeful. These plans existed from the foundation of the world. They are powerful to grant to us an inheritance of eternal life and a kingdom prepared for us. They are personal in that they are guaranteed to us by our King who has become our brother through the adoption of the gospel. And we receive then the relationship into the Godhead uh, and such that we call God our Father and we come to Jesus our King blessed by God our Father. The affirmation that the sheep receive is overwhelming in its power, its glory, and its compassion. Let's move to what is the evidence upon which this affirmation is based. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. So there is a connection. Because of this evidence you know, among the sheep, because of something that is different about their decisions and nature, and their activity and what they have evidenced in their life, they will therefore receive the inheritance of the kingdom. There are six needs as, I, as we see them listed here. Symbolic needs, I call them, that characterize the um, relation, or that characterize, or they're a point of contact to describe something different about the sheep who receive affirmation. Their hunger, thirst, estrangement, nakedness, sickness, and imprisonment. Okay, so those six things. Now all of these speak to something of a loss or a deprivation, suffering or destitution. Again, hunger, thirst, estrangement, nakedness, sickness, and imprisonment. Matthew 8, 19. And in a way, in a very real sense, those who identify with Christ identify with His sufferings. Paul has told us as much. In Matthew 8, um, people were approaching Christ, and they were doing so with an idea in their mind. And Christ, knowing their hearts, as the Bible and other places describe sometimes seems to shut down their, what appears to us, noble desires. For instance, Matthew 8, 19, a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It seems the implication in the text is that might might have thrown cold water on that man's plans. In other words, this man, if that is the case, this man would receive Christ so long as he was an undefeatable uh, healing Messiah, powerful teacher. You see, what the crowds had seen Jesus doing was these mighty exploits and supernatural activity where he is sovereignly walking on water and healing the sick and cleansing the leper and raising the dead and so on. And what Jesus tells this man is, if you want to identify with me, you don't identify as a powerful, influential, mover, shaker, great teacher, healing worker. You have to identify with my sufferings. Are you willing to follow if it means having no place to lay your head? Are you willing to receive the call of the gospel if it means hunger, thirst, estrangement, nakedness, sickness, and imprisonment? If the answer is yes, God has changed your heart. You are a sheep, and you will one day hear that voice from glory. Enter in to come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared before you, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Hebrews chapter 10, it isn't but a generation or two before the application of these verses makes so much sense to the hearers. And in the testimony of the church written to in the Hebrews, we find evidence of these very concepts. Verse 32, they are commended, they receive a word of affirmation from the author He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There it is. The promise of the kingdom of God, the better possession and glory, allowed them faithfulness and confidence even if standing for the gospel risked things like hunger, thirst, estrangement, nakedness, sickness, imprisonment. Jesus Christ describes us, his disciples, as ambassadors, as heralds, representative agents, We go representing him, bringing the gospel forward. Now, in ancient times, it may have been most impressive if the agent came on the tallest, strongest, you know, whitest horse, and he rode in with the signet ring of gold and regal robes, and his very presence in the midst of them was impressive. And as they saw this individual, they thought a hush falls over the courtyard as this dignitary arrives, and they figure, we better listen to him. It is clear he comes from the king. It just so happens in God's sovereign providence that the envoys that he sends, the ambassadors, the agents that represent him that he sends in this life, they don't wear the outward regal robes. You and I are humble, meek, lowly, poor in spirit if we relate to the temperaments described in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We're not flashy, impressive, and so when the gospel goes forward, It goes through vessels that often suffer shipwreck, famine, sword, scoffing, rejection, estrangement, like Paul did, hunger, thirst, nakedness, sickness, and imprisonment, like Jesus and so many of his followers did. 
if the gospel is not impressive to the world because it is accompanied by these kinds of conditions, then they will fall into the goat category. The idea is you receive this individual on the basis of not his flashy clothes or his personal accomplishments, his impressive, ambitious resume, but you receive him because he comes declaring the word of God. And if receiving him means that you might have to join in hunger, thirst, estrangement, nakedness, sickness, imprisonment, so be it. I receive, or so be it, knowing full well that ultimately what I receive in the gospel is the fulfillment of a promise of a kingdom that surpasses and transcends and cannot be compared to any riches, wealth, and ease in this life. This is the idea, the thrust of this affirmation decree. And these needs symbolize something. They symbolize a willingness to join in the sufferings of Christ. A willingness to suffer the loss in this life that we might gain Him. Take up our cross and model what, what the cruciform, if you will, life looks like. A life that models something what Christ endured for His sake. Not that our suffering itself achieves anything except the opportunity by God's glory to testify to the reality of a faith that's stronger than our feelings and our comfort. Finally, there's this hospitality by proxy the idea. In other words, for those who welcome the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, and the right, uh, and so on, the thirsty and the hungry, when in so doing, so these unassuming gospel messengers, when they are received, and when they are clothed with the dignity of hearing their word in spite of their diminutive outward appearance and so on and worldly means, when they do so, they are receiving Christ. Notice a parallel passage in Matthew 21. You don't necessarily need to turn there. But Jesus told a parable that gave this already, or gave this idea already, that it's the parable of the tenants. And you remember, the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another, and again he sent other servants. More than the first, they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants saw the son, and they said to him themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Then therefore the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the first fruits or the fruits in their seasons. And in this picture, it represented the emissaries, the envoys that came before Christ. The prophets who came before announcing God's word. And because they didn't seem too assuming on the, surface, on the surface, there were just a lone voice crying in the wilderness, the hearers thought it would be easy to disregard them. I'll prove that I'm stronger than you by taking your life. After all, you don't come as an emissary of the kingdom with an oppressive array of an army and riches behind you. And in the same way, those who follow Christ will incur a similar set of circumstances. Envoys and ambassadors who testify to Christ after he has come, you and I, we may be treated the, the same way. But those who hear the word of Christ and understand its value for what it is, uh, without respect to the a vessel that brings it, they are the ones who are the sheep and will ultimately hear that affirmation decree. How believers are received 
is parallel to hospitality toward the gospel. How believers are received is parallel to hospitality of the gospel. A quote for you from the notes in my study Bible. Christ's disciples are meant here in this section. I was hungry and you gave me food. It doesn't mean everyone necessarily who is hungry in the world, like some uh, kind of you know, humanitarian mission, merely humanitarian mission. Christ's disciples are meant here, not the poor and needy in general. The judgment of the nations depends on how they respond to Christians and to the gospel, not only because it is through the testimony of Christians that the Gentiles can hear and believe, but also because Christ identifies with his people. Their suffering is his suffering, and compassion shown to them is compassion shown to him. Finally, this morning and in closing, the third (coughs) category of decisive judgment revealed is the condemnation decree. And it's virtually parallel in, in its contrast. Those who receive the word of affirmation, the sheep, those who don't fall into the category of affirmation receive condemnation. And it sounds like this in verse 40. It says, Then he will say to those, 41, on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into, etern- into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And he goes through this list, and it's merely the negation of what was affirmed before. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. And so on. And then he will answer them in verse 45. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is a sovereignty demonstrated even in the fact that evil exists, the sovereignty of God is demonstrated even in spite of the evil that yet resides in this world. There is no shyness in the Bible in the approaching the question, how can there be evil in the world if there is such a thing as a good God? There is no such nervousness, there, there is nothing like nervousness or backpedaling from that supposedly philosophical defeater of the Christian worldview. It is just uh, plainly put forward in Scripture that the devil is God's tool, if you will. Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If the sovereignty of God can prepare a future judgment scenario where the devil will be ultimately disabled, and he will, then we can be assured that his leash is only as long as God's sovereignty will let it now, and it serves a divine purpose. The condemnation decree will come, not only for the wicked who follow the lies of Satan, but also for the devil and all his angels. They will share the same fate in the lake of eternal fire, as Revelation reveals it to be. Now this this, uh, uh, judgment here, what does it serve to show about the glory of God? Well, if not the power of the Son of Man to rule and to reign even over evil and its most insidious agents, the devil, the demons, and all who have been empowered by them to do their wickedness through the course of history. The very first message I preached from the pulpit of Providence after a public launch, I made the point that God has ordained to manifest His glory both by reflection 
and by contrast. Ultimately, that's the answer to why evil exists to any degree right now, in my judgment. It's a summary theological truth from the greater testimony of Scripture. God has ordained to glorify Himself by contrast. Christ, the victorious judge, is all the more manifest in His glory when the nemesis to His throne is bound in chains, is completely defanged, whose exploits are totally undone. The things that He put all His evil energy into is ultimately proven futile, he is destroyed in the lake of fire forever, Revelation 20, 10 through 15. Who are the least of these? It's interesting as we see in this condemnation decree, and we seek to apply it to our own lives and even in broader society, we need answers to these questions. The least of these are those who are seemingly insignificant and lowly, yet if you disregard them, you disregard Christ. Have you guys ever seen pictures of like six living presidents hanging out with Billy Graham. Um, it happens every election cycle where the most influential you know, power brokers in our nation will solicit, you know, I think, pander to certain evangelical leaders or church leaders or whatever. And at these photo opportunities, it perhaps allows them to project an image of, you know, I'm with this guy, so-and-so's on my team. And invariably, do they you know, call uh, some you know, obscure Christian who lives in uh, the central Minnesota to come join them on the stage? No, who would they call? They'll call people who represent important, you know, popular platforms in uh, Christian ministry. Well, this does nothing to assure them that they will one day hear, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. There, it isn't those who associate with the big names because, you know, perhaps it can secure for them a voting block who will hear, you know, come, you are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom before you, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And neither should we see it as making great inroads through the church of Jesus Christ when dignitaries are willing to meet with, not the least of us, but the most influential of us. Do you understand? The message is this. If you are an individual who is plagued by the temptation of wielding certain influence, and you are in a place where either you exalt yourself as an idol or solicit the worship of others in any sense. It's a dangerous place to be. I'm not saying that God does not have true callings for leaders. He certainly does. But these are the trappings. These are the areas of society that are most given to the nations exalting himself against the knowledge of God. But if you find yourself in that place, the only assurance that you can have that when you stand before Christ the judge, you'll be found on the right hand in the sheep category is if you value the least of these. Not just pandering to the greatest, but recognizing that the real power of the gospel resides in that church of 30 people down the road that if you met with that pastor, he would call you out for repentance. Not the photo opportunity, you know, that just looks good on the cover of the latest blog or magazine or newspaper article, but instead... That preacher who comes to David like Nathan gives him the story of the man who took the sheep that wasn't his own, who was rich and had flocks by the thousands. And then he says to him, you, O king, are the man. What Nathan did, though he had no civil authority, though he couldn't, you know, stage a coup against David, was he, as the least of these, brought the word of God to the dignitary and to the king. In this case, the king surrendered, namely David, to the word of God 
through this unassuming, seemingly insignificant, and lowly voice from the prophet. That's an example of those who receive, the, uh, who receive Christ through the least of these. In Matthew 18, 1 through 5, Jesus says, If you don't become like a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same construction. He says in those passages in Matthew 18 that whoever humbles himself, or I'm sorry, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, whoever receives one of the least of these receives me. But conversely, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And there you see affirmation or condemnation is, is based upon those who bear Christ's image, how they are received. Brings some perspective in our day, does it not? Finally, this morning, there is a dual destiny, only two eventualities that ultimately can be expected. We've expounded upon the one. It's glorious as we read, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared before you from the foundation of the world. But the other is uh, equally powerful, but it is as it is terrible. And those will go away, verse 46, into ever, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is a true heaven to gain, and there is only one way to get there. There is a true hell to shun. And don't let this world and its system reduce it to some kind of abstraction. Look closely at the scriptures. Let us search our own hearts to see where our own affections are wired. And let us take up the sword of the Spirit such as we find it today. And do not be afraid to proclaim Christ as the judge before whom all of us must stand and give an account. And remember, as the gospel continues to unfold, that the only way to stand before him justified is to receive his sacrificial death as payment for your sin. Let's close in prayer today. Oh, Father, we thank you for your scriptures that provide such a convicting word for us, Lord, as we read them. Lord, we live in a day of increasing unpopularity when it comes to the things of you. There are those who pander, but few who surrender. There are those, Lord Jesus, who make a show on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones. There are those, Lord, even in this room who struggle, Lord, with the superficial trappings of this life and often forget, Lord Jesus, the truths that you gave to bring perspective to your disciples in a day of trial and uh, danger as they were going into an era of tribulation themselves. I pray, Lord, that we would receive correction, perspective, and equipping from your scriptures today so we might stand, Lord Jesus, even if no one else will join us to proclaim that Christ is Lord. We are unassuming in the surface. We are sinners saved by grace. There is nothing intrinsic to us by which we can boast. But I pray that we will boast in Christ the Lord, Him crucified. Lord, I pray that we will be proud of the gospel, nothing else, in all that you might be magnified and glorified. Lord, it's amazing to think that if we are diligent to your word, how we are received actually makes the difference whether someone is a sheep or a goat. May we be found proclaiming the truth and living for you in such a way so that people receive us, they receive Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.